Welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Colossians. Colossians, a letter from Paul to the church of Colossae, offers a beautiful picture of who Christ is. With the knowledge of Christ's preeminence, we can face the external pressure on our faith. Paul encourages the reader to put on the new man and to let the knowledge of this newness in Christ guide every aspect of life. The series is presented by David Rushton. David has served for many years as the worship leader at Calvary Chapel, French Valley. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Colossians as we discover Christ in all. my pleasure to share with you from this aspect of the service once again. If you would take your Bibles, let's open to Colossians chapter 3. It's been a while since I've been able to be up here and teach, but uh, maybe you'll remember we're working through Colossians. And um, I want to start with some review so we can get context of where we're at. So, Paul has heard about this church in Colossae. That's why the book is called Colossians. It's a book to the Colossians. And this is a Greek church. Uh, Paul's heard that they have a great love for God and the body of believers. And he tells them in Colossians chapter 2 that for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. Paul is taking time to encourage this church in the teaching that they've received uh, he also wants to warn them against false teachings that are spreading throughout the church. The first false teaching that he deals with is an idea called Gnosticism. This comes out of uh, a Greek philosophy. It's people claiming to have some secret knowledge about the physical and the spiritual. But Paul says that the knowledge of God is the mystery that is revealed to believers, that they don't need something extra from men who come along saying that they've received something secret. The second thing Paul deals with in uh, Colossians chapter 2 is um, legalism. People are coming and telling the Greeks that they need to be circumcised, which is a work of the flesh. And Paul says, your circumcision is not of the flesh, but it's of the spirit. It's accomplished by the work of Christ and the work of Christ in you. And um, today we're going to continue now in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul's going to deal with a different type of issue. So far, he's talked about false teachers coming into the church, so these are external pressures on their faith. But today, we're going to learn that he speaks about the things that are born from the inside of a man, the internal pressures on our faith, the things that come from our very own nature. So let's read our passage today, starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of, the thing, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. 
But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray to open this teaching. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that we can come and read. Lord, we thank you that your word is available to us here. We know that throughout the whole world, this is uh, not something that every believer can can just grab and, and look at all the time, Lord, but you've given it to us to know you and to know you better. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, we would open up our hearts Lord, allow you to speak into us the things that are written here, to reveal, as Jeffrey prayed earlier, to reveal yourself more to us, that we would understand something deeper and more intimate about you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work in us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to actually start by going back into chapter 2, because I want to look at a theme that Paul has been building up to this point. So if we look back, it's on the same page in my Bible, but maybe you'll have to turn. If we look at chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. And if we skip forward to verse 20 of chapter 2, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, and now in chapter 3, our text for today, verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ. Paul is working through this illustration of death and resurrection and using baptism as an illustration. He's comparing a physical truth and a spiritual truth. The physical truth is that most people will die. Should the Lord tarry, we will all pass away. We will all go to sleep, as he says in another book, right? Unless a chariot of fire comes and picks you up, but not counting on that one, right? So we're all going to die. But the truth is that believers will be raised again into the glorified body. This is a physical truth we know, and we're confident in this. We know this will happen. That last chapter ended with, if you died with Christ, and this one starts with, if you were then raised with Christ. This is the spiritual truth, that in this life, we die and we are raised again. And through baptism, we demonstrate outwardly this inward experience of Christ's work within us. The spiritual death and resurrection for a believer has already happened. The physical truth that we're talking about is in the future, but the spiritual truth is something we're living now, we've already experienced if you've surrendered your life to Christ. And it's important that we understand of the spiritual truth both aspects of the death and the resurrection. So death is sacrifice, right? Our spiritual death is sacrificing the things of this world. We're believing in God and we're acknowledging his lordship, his sovereignty over all things. And we, when we repent, we're accepting that his ways of life are better than the world's ways of life. We deny that sin. But do we deny the sin and that's all there is to it? 
Is dying the point? Baptism would be way different if Pastor Rick just put you in the water and held you there. <laughs> Let me ask that another way. Can my sacrifices bring me salvation? Can my death save me? Do I say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, and now I await your judgment? No. The obvious answer is no. People are whispering it, but it, the answer is no. I'm going to ask you to uh, turn to Romans chapter 6. And, and you guys are right. The truth is a believer doesn't just die. The death is not really the goal here. So in Romans chapter 6, let's start reading in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This resurrection is the point. The death is the doorway into resurrection, but the death isn't the end goal. The point is to be raised again. Christ's resurrection proves the acceptability of his sacrifice, and it's the guarantee of our resurrection. I had this thought while working through this that death without resurrection is just judgment, and we're not destined for judgment. If you accept Christ as your Lord, your destiny is life in heaven with him. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's not about do's and don'ts like the legalists would try to make you think. It's about newness of life, not bound to the reign of sin in our lives, not being led to and fro by, you know, the crashing waves or the, the temporariness of our feelings or what we want to be true. Again, death isn't God's plan. His plan is life. In fact, the Lord said this in John 10.10. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, uh, but that but that the world through him might be saved. Let's turn back to Colossians chapter three. So in chapter two, Paul said that we died to the basic principles of the world. Our paths, the decisions that we make, they're not determined by the world the way this world operates. We let God have that say in our lives. 
even if the world thinks it's crazy, you know, should we live here or should we live there? Should I take that job or this job? We might make decisions that the world doesn't understand. Maybe you take a job where you make less money, but it allows you to, you know, further your work for the kingdom. It's, it's not our decision to make anymore. We've surrendered that decision to God. So now continuing in chapter 3, we're going to read how then being raised affects our daily life. So let's continue in Colossians 3 verse 1. Seek those things, well let me start at the beginning. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. The word seek here that we read I'm going to do one of pastor's grammatical things. It is in the, hold on, where is it? Present active imperative tense. That's what my Bible study said. What it means is that we are to seek and to continue seeking. It's not something that we do once. If it was just in the imperative tense, that would be like saying seek, like go and seek or flip the burger or something like that, right? It would just be, go and do this thing once. But the idea here is to seek and continue seeking, to not let yourself become lax in seeking the things of God. Paul continues on and says, seek and set your mind on things above. In the original King James Version, it says, set your affections on things above. That means, let the things that are going to affect you be the things from above. And you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking about what are the things above that I let affect me, right? I, I thought of streets of gold, as it talks about in, uh, I think it's in Revelation, and the pearly gates and the 12 gates and, and all that. And, um, you know, there's, Jesus talks about treasure stored in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves can't come in and break in and steal, and these are heavenly things, but as I thought about it, I thought that that was kind of even sell, selling heaven short a bit. All the beauty of those things, they pale in comparison to our fellowship with God in Christ. When I think about heaven, I think about the amazing fact that John said that when he looked, there was no sun. That heaven was illuminated by the glory of Christ. And as I thought about that more, I thought about when, when God says, I think it was to Moses, no man can see me and live. The glory of God would burn everything up. And yet in heaven, we are bathed in the light of Christ and we persist. We continue to exist in that glory. I think about the words of Paul where he said that we will no longer see dimly in a mirror, but face to face to know as I am known. To know God in a deeper and more profound way than we could ever experience here. To see God completely separated from my sin. Right now, every aspect of God that I know, even when I open this Bible and I read it, and I try so hard to understand him in the way he's revealed himself, there's sin, oops, there's sin in the way there. But in heaven, there will be no perversion there will be no misunderstandings. There will be perfect knowledge of God. That's what I think of when I think of heaven. And it's hard to make a craft in the kids' ministry of that. So we do the streets of gold and the pearls and all that. 
You know, I try with all my might today to keep and to keep seeking. And I know that it isn't possible, you know, on my own, in this body of death, as Paul calls it in Romans 8. But each grace, every glimpse that I get of God, I taste and I see more and I desire that so much. And my mind is set on that day when knowing a little bit more about God is not such a struggle. Today, we put on the armor of God, right? I I gird myself with the belt of truth and I put on the shoes of the peace of the gospel and I take up the sword of the word and I put on the helmet of salvation and I hold the shield of faith. And as I thought about heaven, I thought that I won't need the shield of faith anymore. Because my faith will be my eyes. I will see the Lord. There will be no doubt in that day. Not that I doubt now, but there will be even less doubt than there is now. That the fulfillment of God's promises to me through his word will be fully understood. There will be no more cloudiness about them. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, said, Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I look to those words and that's how I try to imagine my striving for God is to know that, you know, I need to just keep pressing on, that there's something more and there's always more for me to attain and to know that in this life it's an unending race, but one day all those promises will be fulfilled. You know, and I want to point out that seeking and continuing to seek is a commandment that we're given here within the trials of life. You know, there's so many preachers out there that are part of the prosperity gospel movement. And they'll tell you that devotion and positive confession will transcend things like poverty and illness and pain. That you can escape all of those things if you would just devote yourself more to their kingdom that they're calling God's kingdom. I I always find that hard to believe because you can look at Paul earnestly devoting himself to God, and yet God doesn't remove the thorn in his flesh. So what promise is there that he should remove my shortcomings, right? Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Setting our mind on the things above is to trust in the Lord in our trials, Psalm 23 says that he will carry us through the valley of the shadow of death. Not that he'll steer us around it or keep us from ever entering it, but that he will walk with us through it. And you could look at the lives of those who trusted God. They were not strangers to pain and suffering and persecution. Paul was beaten and stoned. Stephen was martyred. And Earlier this year, I spent a lot of time thinking about and reading the book of Job. And Job endured unbelievable suffering and pain. And this verse out of Job 19 really caught me. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. 
And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I pray that that would be our outlook on life, that the things of this earth, man, they can hurt. They can hurt really bad. When I was going through Job, God was bringing me and my family through hard things. And the book of Job is all about the sovereignty of God. And that helped me understand my circumstances. And this verse helped me understand that, yeah, life sucks sometimes. But it's not about this life. It's about looking forward and knowing that you will see your Savior again face to face in his glory. So let's continue in Colossians chapter 3, now in verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul here reiterates this theme of death and life. I love the apparent contradiction that's here in verse 3. He says, for you died, and your life is. It's like, well, normally if you die... Your life is not. <laughs> but he says, you died and your life is. I thought that was interesting. We said before that we set our minds on things above. And Christ is above, right? He sits at the right hand of the Father. Verse 3 says that our life is hidden in Christ. So where is our life? It's above, right? And we set our minds on the things above. Our life in Christ is part of that above. We are to seek after a deeper life in Christ and to set our minds on the fact that our life isn't here, but with Christ. And in verse 4, then, we look to the future. To reread verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ returns in glory, we appear with him in glory. We conform to the glorified body. We shed this mortal frame, and we appear in his likeness. This happens in the future, but it's part of the things above. It's part of the things that we can set our mind on. Again, when, when you go about this world and your frail body, you know, I'm not that old. Pastor Rick's pretty old. He probably feels a lot more than me, you know. When he's driving pole holes, you know, and his body is frail, you know, do you, do you sit there and you, and you, you dwell and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, do you dwell on, on the, this is what I get for going off my notes. Do you despair in that? No, you go, one day this body will be done with. Lord, bring that day. I'm ready, right? All right, let's continue. <laughs> now that I've made fun of pastor again. <sighs> All right, Colossians uh, verse 5 now. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 5 starts with a therefore, and he's speaking about this death and raised life. Because of this raised life, what are we to do? We are to put to death these members. We died and we were raised up and we demonstrated that in baptism. How then does that affect us? Paul's already spoken, like we said, about the external pressures, the philosophies and legalism and asceticism that people are bringing into the church. But now he speaks of these internal pressures, the things inside the man. 
the things that are born out of the body of death. Remember, we died to these things, so they should no longer rule us. Let's just go through the things that he pointed out. He first pointed out fornication, which is sex outside of marriage or incest and adultery. Uncleanness, he's speaking both physically and moral, uh, both physical and moral uncleanness. Passion here carries with it the idea of excessive passion or lust. Literally, the word actually means suffering. Like you desire something so much that you suffer without it, that you view your life as something less because you don't have it. It can mean suffering or, or desiring anything, but it often carries the idea of sexual desire. Next, he says evil desire, which is wishing harm on others or dwelling on maybe their demise or something like that. And lastly, he lists covetousness, which is envy, but also it includes acts like, um, like fraudulence or extortion, things like that. These are pretty serious offenses, right? Let's continue in verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. These are the types of things that stir up God's wrath. If you believe in and love God, why would you continue in these things? We used to walk in these things. This is how the world operates, you know? If you're in a relationship and God's not a part of it, why would you not be sleeping with your partner? Why would you not move in together? You know, if... Uh, I mean, seriously, at work, we talk about fraud all the time. I don't work in a place where you would normally think of fraud, but fraud is just lying about circumstances for a beneficial outcome for yourself. In my line of work, that's hiding things that you might have accidentally done so that it doesn't ruin the product we're trying to produce. And um, That's the way the world operates. It's self-preservation. You're thinking about yourself and how I can get what I want and what I need. And because of the fall, this is the way the world is run. It's ruled by disobedience and sin. And God will judge sin. In verse, uh, uh, no, and God will judge sin. That's why Christ came, that through him the world might be saved. Let's read verse 7 in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Paul is saying, you once walked in these things. Before you were a believer, you walked in these things. God's mercy and grace, though, at one point captured your heart, and you turned away from the things of the world. You became aware of the judgment that these things require, and you trembled. You should continue to tremble over these things, not for your judgment, but knowing the judgment that comes upon those who don't believe in Christ and haven't been covered by his grace and mercy. And though you're saved from this judgment, would you defile God's name by continuing in these things? If you're engaging in these behaviors, I'm going to tell you to stop it. <laughs> don't, please. Your salvation is from these things. But I think that we can often lie to ourselves. In case you think you're immune to these kinds of things, I'm going to refer you to some of Pastor's recent teachings in the book of Matthew. He called them kingdom principles, 
where Jesus talked about it's not just about the rule, but it's about the work of your heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28 says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.22 says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Matthew chapter 6 says, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret will see it. Uh, will himself reward you openly. The fact of the matter is that these sins can be sneaky. We die not just to the outward practice of these sins, but to the inward workings of them, the things that motivate us to do them, or the rationalizations or the justifications that we come up with for why we might do them. Entertaining these thoughts, even if we don't act on them, Jesus is telling us is sin. Hopefully, these thoughts will stop altogether, but until then, we need to bring them captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to recognize that thought and immediately repent of it and say, Lord, that's wicked and that's awful. Please deliver me from even having these thoughts to letting them come in my mind because of my wicked body. In the next section, Paul is going to describe some more behaviors and actions that we died to. And I thought it was really interesting that there were two separate lists that he made here. One truth that we ought to understand is that all sin is sin, right? All sin is equal in God's eyes. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of certain sins or the wages of really bad sins, but the wages of sin, that's all sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All sin separates us from God. It disqualifies us from the requirement of perfection to enter into the heavenly kingdom. That's why all sin requires Jesus to come and to atone and to pay that penalty and take the punishment of our sin. So this is true. All sin is sin. The Bible does qualify some certain sins a little extra. For instance, 1 Corinthians specifically states that sexual sin carries specific consequences. The separation in these two lists, the second list we're going to look at, I think speaks to the severity of the possible physical consequences that these sins might bring. Again, all sin is sin. It will all be judged. It all separates us from God. But there are physical consequences that some sins carry that others do not. You'll notice that the first list mentions a few things related to sexual conduct, fornication, uncleanness, and excessive passion. I also found it interesting that a couple of the other things in the first list were exactly things from the Ten Commandments. The second list, though, does not include those things. There's not sexual conduct listed here. And um, I think this is going to speak to a couple of things First off, that we may not view these in the right way, that we tend to allow them to sneak in, 
even as believers in Christ who have been renewed and regenerated, we sometimes look at these and go, eh, that's just me being me. Or, oh, that's just something I'm working on. I'll get there one day. And not viewing them as strongly or as firmly as we should. You know, maybe it's easy to not commit adultery. Literally, thought has never even crossed my mind. Uh, um, where am I? I've also never committed extortion. I listed that on here. I don't think I'm in the position to extort anybody, but I've never done it, right? The point is, is we view those things as like big, bad ones, but those may be easy to avoid. Let's read this next list and all be convicted together. (laughs) But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. These things are so much more pervasive in the life of a Christian. In our arrogance, or maybe in our ignorance, we tend, like I said, to minimize these sins. But all sin is putrid in the eyes of God. He hates it, all of it. We tend to look at people who are doing wicked, awful, terrible things, and we can't wait for God to judge them. But we turn a blind eye to ourselves, right? And I'm not saying we should walk around condemned. Jesus said, we read the verse earlier, that the world is already condemned, that he came that we might not be condemned through his sacrifice and through the salvation that he offers. But I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about conviction, that we should look at these things and be so much more compelled to be like Christ, even in these little things. This list we just read, I'm going to point some verses from the Bible to each one of them. Because what I want to point out is God really cares about these things too. So the first thing Paul listed is anger. Proverbs 29:22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. The second one is wrath. James 1, 19 and 20 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Next is malice, which is evil or wickedness. Proverbs 12, 3 says, A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. The next is blasphemy, and often we think of blasphemy as directed towards God, but blasphemy has a more broad definition of speaking falsely or ill um, of anybody, although it definitely comes with the connotation of towards God. Here's what Leviticus has to say about blasphemy. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Whew. Next is filthy language. Ephesians 5, 4 says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. And lastly, he listed lying. Proverbs 12, 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. At the end of the day, we are supposed to have died to these things too. And look at the strong language that the word uses against these things that, again, we so often minimize or justify. Why do we continue in these things so often? You know, um, why does my five-year-old doing five-year-old things get to me so much, 
right? Why do I let that frustration in? Why do I let it build up and then I outburst in anger and, and, and speak to her harshly in ways that a little five-year-old doesn't deserve? She's just being a kid. It's childishness most of the time. Right? Maybe you struggle more with wrath. When you look in the world and you see people doing these awfully wicked things, do you find yourself stirred up emotionally about it? Maybe you dwell on or you're even praying for their judgment to come sooner than God has ordained. You know, you might say, but this is righteous indignation, right? Well, maybe, but my Bible warns me pretty strongly against the wrath of man and its folly. Do you use foul language at work? This mostly is about guys, but it can apply to women as well. You know, it's easy to speak in a God-honoring way at church or maybe in your home where you're trying to build a culture and teach your children how to talk and think. But at work, do you join in the crass jokes? You know, is that just guy talk? You shouldn't, and no, it isn't, right? It's not just guy talk. It's filthy language, and Paul says it has no place in the life of a believer, We died to these things, and we were raised again into newness of life. Let's continue now in uh, verse 9. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Paul commands us then to put off these things, and to put on the new man. This isn't a surface level change. This isn't just a change in attitude or behavior. This is a deep heart level transformational change. It's a change from the inside out. And even more so than that, this is an exchanging of the old for the new. This is something new entirely. Not just the old putting on new clothes, but the old self being put to death and then us taking up the newness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I think about in the book of Ezekiel, um, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says that he will take out their heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. It's not, again, it's not just about an outward change. It's about the inside transformation that we go through. Brothers and sisters, we are made new, and sin no longer rules the heart. It has no hold or sway in our lives. We are no longer slaves of disobedience, but we are children of God. You can read in Romans where Paul talks about this dichotomy or this, this, re, this uh, reality of your slaves to either obedience or to God. And if you are made new in Christ, you're not a slave to disobedience or sin anymore. And you ought to act like, you're an obe- uh, like you are a slave to God or a child of God. And moreover, we are to remember whose image we bear. Genesis says that man was created in the image of God. Then it goes on to say that as Adam sinned, all man bears the image of Adam, and that is that sin. All mankind is no sin. All mankind has been ruled by sin. Some have turned and trusted in God and turned away from being ruled by sin to instead be ruled by the deity and sovereignty of Christ. We died, believers, to the ways of this world, and we are raised up as a new creation, And our knowledge then is renewed. 
no longer operating as part of this world, but as God's children operating within this world. Paul continues to say that anyone can be renewed. Let's continue now in verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. With this section here, Paul is breaking down some pretty strong barriers that existed in the ancient world. We'll just go through them one by one. Jews versus Gentiles, right? Uh, circumcised versus uncircumcised is very closely paired to this. These are barriers of, of like heritage and culture. And he's saying it doesn't matter where your people came from or what religion your fathers followed. You can be part of this newness of life. He says barbarians, uh, barbarians and Scythians. And here he's talking about another cultural aspect. You know, Greeks and Romans were pretty high-minded. They thought a lot of themselves. And if you weren't a Greek or a Roman, you were a barbarian. Uh, it was just a catch-all term for, for people who were not uh, living in big cities and were super cool with gold chariots and stuff. Uh, and so he's saying even, even the barbarians can be born into this new life. And then he says Scythians. Scythians were thought as the lowest of the low. If you were a barbarian, you were leagues ahead of a Scythian. And he's saying even they are reachable. Even they can be born into newness of life. And lastly, he lists slave nor free. That it doesn't matter your social status. You can be a king or you can be a slave. And in fact, in the early uh, church in the first and second century, the Christian church was known as a religion of women and slaves. It was thought of in that kind of derogatory way because of these words where Paul said, it doesn't matter who you are. We are all one in Christ. There is no there is no separation or there is no distinction between these social statuses and the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. We are all made children of God. He says, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. If Christ is all to you, if you acknowledge that Christ is in all, in all aspects of life, if to you there is no division between the secular and the religious, then you are a new man. You are a child of God. You've been adopted into this family. I said earlier that the Christian life is not a list of do's or don'ts. And then we read a whole section that seems like a pretty clear list of don'ts, right? And, um, the truth is, is that the Christian life, the renewed and regenerated life, should bear certain fruit. We don't not do these things because we're afraid of judgment. You know, that's cultish. You can go and read about um, Bill Gothard or whatever, Jamie, and I sometimes talk about that for some reason. And, um, you know, that's how they raise their children, is basically like, here's the rules, and if you don't follow them, your whole family will die in a car crash because God will judge them. And it's like, mm, I don't think that that's an appropriate way to uh, interpret the scriptures, right? That's cultish. Instead, we are compelled to separate ourselves from these things, these behaviors, because of what God did for us. I am aware of where I was headed. I was condemned. And Psalm 103 says that the father looked on me with pity. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. 
for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he determined to send his son. And Jesus came as a willing participant. And he laid down his life as a sacrifice. He was the propitiation for my sin. That means the substitutionary sacrifice. And then the Holy Spirit was sent to guide me on this narrow road. The fear of judgment is no longer mine to consider. I don't have to hold on to it and think about it and fear it. Instead, my mind can be set on the the awe and wonder of his mercy and grace. I can focus instead on the promises of things that are above and not the things of this earth. Paul opened this epistle by commending the Colossian church of their love for God and the body. And that's the motivation of the Christian. A life that's lived in a loving response to God's work in our lives. Ultimately, this is the crux of our struggle. This is the crux of the whole issue. Is my love for God greater than my love for this world? You know, it might sound harsh when you start to apply this to certain things. You know, you can say, well, I love God more than anything, you know. But why do I speak harshly to my five-year-old? I think it's because I don't love God enough. You know, maybe you might ask, why does my tongue slip up at work? I would suggest it's because you don't love God enough. And why do I let thought, my thoughts dwell on, on the wicked things I'd like to happen to wicked people? Well, you don't love God enough. I recently heard a song, and its simplicity just captured me from the first moment. These are the words to the song. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. We cling too tightly to the things of this world. And we let the things of this life affect us way too much. So how do we grow in love for God? Paul told us earlier, by seeking and by continuing to seek. By setting our mind on things above. We let the truth of his gospel give us perspective. When circumstances of life seem to have no earthly good, Remember that he's working a mighty work in you. You might not see it in this life, but your mind is set on things above. You know, I was, I was thinking while writing these, I was thinking this morning about this, because this is where my notes end. But then I was thinking, I kind of left something out of this. Is like, what if we don't set our minds on these things? What does that mean for the life of a Christian, Right? At best, it means that we are stagnant, that we don't grow anymore, that we just kind of sit there idle, not really urging anybody to anything better, not showing anybody that there's a better way, and we just become complacent, we're happy in our salvation, and that's it for us, right? That's at best. At worst, or, you know, worse than that is you start to backslide, you know? And, and you start to just conform to the things of the world again. And the transformative work that Christ did in you begins to reverse, right? Maybe you won't lose your salvation. I don't believe that you will. You can read the word. We could talk about that all day long if you want to. But you're not going to show any proof of the work, the power of Christ in you. 
You know, and I alluded earlier to hard things happening in my family earlier this year. My uncle, who was a believer, took his own life. You know, and it just made me think. You know, I was supposed to teach this teaching a couple weeks after that happened. And I thank God that things didn't work out because I don't think I was ready to talk about it. You know? But he wasn't focused on the right thing at all. He set his affections on the things of this world. His business and money and the things with his family overwhelmed him. And they consumed him. And they took every good and joyful and pure thing from him. And he was left with no hope, even though he knew there was hope. If we don't set our minds on things above, and if we don't seek and keep seeking, who knows what the future holds for us? But if I seek and I set my mind on things above, I am confident and I am sure of a glorious and beautiful future. Even when things get hard, even when businesses fail, even when people scorn you and hate you, even when the government does crazy stuff, it doesn't matter. My future is sure. So, in this section, we talked about behaviors and attitudes and conditions of the old man. When I have an opportunity to teach next, who knows when that'll be, hopefully sooner than later, we're going to look at the characteristics of the new man. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that we can open here. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you challenge us strongly into something deeper, Lord. I pray that the words that we read here and that we listen to, Lord, are not just words that sound good and, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll put in the effort or whatever, Lord, but that we would be convicted here and now to know that there are better things for us. Lord, no matter where we are in our walk, Lord, we each are on a path of sanctification, whether we're new to this or we've been doing it a long time, Lord, we have not yet attained. We have not yet apprehended. And there's something more glorious and more beautiful just around the corner if we would lean into it more. Lord, I recognize too that we cannot do this on our own. Lord, I come before you humbly knowing that my will is weak. My will is often of the flesh. So Lord, I pray that instead you would work your will within me. Holy Spirit, that you would stir up my spirit with a desire to glorify and, and reflect the glory of Christ more often and in more aspects of my behaviors and my attitudes. Lord, as we talk about the old man, I pray that we would find ourselves shedding off these things and putting on newness of life, knowing, Lord, that you, you've started a work in us and trusting that you will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray all these things. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about Christ in all through this study in the book of Colossians. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in prayer. So please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email at prayer at calvaryfv.com 
or text the word PRAY to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to give others hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Jesus.